Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. Good morning. I gotta say, some of y'all are messing with me today, sitting in different places. It's like weird. People just sit in their same place, and some of y'all sit in different places. It throws me off. Like, are we at the same church here? What's going on here? So we're glad that you're here this morning. And some of you are like, I've never been here before. Is he talking about me? No. We're glad that you're here. If you're a guest, uh, we just ask you to do one thing for us. If you're a guest, if you go out to the orange tent on your way out, there's a little card we ask you to fill out. And uh, we've got some gifts we want to give you and some gifts to give some other folks. And uh, for some of you, you might not realize this, we're only a week away from Christmas. Christmas Eve is next Sunday. So then Christmas Day next Monday. So yeah, we, that's exciting stuff. We're glad about that. And uh, hopefully you've gotten tickets uh, for the Christmas Eve service that we have. We're not going to be meeting here at 9 and 10.30 next week, but we're going to be meeting here at 2 o'clock, 3.30, and 5 o'clock. If you don't have tickets yet, make sure you go online and get those tickets after the service today. We'd love to have you uh, be a part of that. And we're going to be doing a gospel-focused message and lots of singing, do something we've never done before as a church. And we're going to be ending our service doing some candlelight singing. And so make sure you get some tickets for that. Uh, We're going to have a special time here as a church. And what we've been doing has been doing this series called The Gift of God. We're talking about Jesus Christ is the ultimate gift that's given to us at this Christmas season. But we've been talking about how with Jesus comes grace, with Jesus comes hope. And we talked about last week how Jesus coming calls us to faith, that we've got to respond to this gift. And I asked the question, what is your next step? And uh, hopefully, those of you who were here last week have taken some steps of faith since that last time that we met together. And uh, if not, hopefully I'll encourage you uh, to take whatever those steps are today. Uh, But I'm going to pray for us. We're going to be in a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 1 today that's less familiar than most of the rest of the Christmas stories. And so we'll be there in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 56. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, that we get to open up your word. Thank you for the relationships that are represented in this room. Thank you that, uh, that there are people here that are hungry for you, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And some are in a battle with sin. Some are losing. God, I pray you give them victory after today. And Father, I pray some that are here and they just want, they want to know what it is you want them to do. And they're willing and they're ready to take the next step of faith. Will you speak to their hearts? And there are some here that are doubting. I'm not sure if you even exist. And God, I pray you'd reveal yourself through your word this morning. I pray you do something special as we meet together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
We've been doing this series called The Gift of God. We've been talking about different gift exchanges, and I've joked to you a little bit about how much I hate fruitcake. I thought about wearing a, a t-shirt this morning that said no fruitcake on the front, but the delivery was backed up because of Christmas delivery, and I didn't want to offend 25% of you, but that was really a secondary issue, just so you know. But some people have been giving me little prank-type gifts after the services, so I'm going to invite you back into my drama, which is also called my life. And uh, after the service last week, I was done preaching, and nobody put fruitcake on my car, which I was thankful for, but someone did put a big picture of Santa Claus on the side of my car when I got out there. And so I got out there, and I was thinking, what do I do with this? What do you do with it? Am I supposed to keep I mean, I'm a pastor, so of course I'm anti-Santa Claus, right? And so some people are going to be bothered by that. Do I leave it on there because it's kind of fun? And so I left it on there for a couple days. I had one guy come into a place. He parked next to me. He said, when I parked next to you, I thought somebody was trapped in the back seat of your car because the Santa Claus was like on there, like on the thing. So I thought you like left one of your kids in the car or something. I was going to come in here and tell you. And, but what do you do with a gift like that? Let me ask you this. Have you ever received a gift? You didn't know what to do with it before. You ever gotten a gift? Maybe it was a, a tool and you're not like a mechanical person and you got the gift and you thought, what am I supposed to do with this? Or maybe it was like a, a new technology, and you're not really a gadget guy or gadget lady, and so you got it, and you're like, what, what do I do? Like, somebody would love this gift, not me. Maybe some clothes that you would never wear. What am I supposed to do with this gift? And in case that's never happened to you before, I was thinking about some Christmas songs this, this past week, and thinking about some of the gifts that we talk about that we just kind of gloss over. Like, we don't even think about what those gifts are as we're, we're listening to the song. We just sing sometimes some ridiculous lyrics. And one of the songs that I want to share with you today is the 12 Days of Christmas but I want you to ask yourself the question, how would you feel if you were the one receiving these gifts? If you thought, some of you know the words, so don't worry about the words, but think about getting the gift. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me, so this person knows you, they thought about you, a partridge and a pear tree. <laughs> a partridge is a bird, in case you didn't know that. Don't ever give me a bird if you're ever thinking about giving me a gift. I think you might love birds. There might be some bird lovers out there. You're going to love this song if that's true. Birds are dirty. They're nasty. And so we got a picture of a bird up here. And it comes with a pear tree. And so then I'd be confused. Like, am I supposed to, like, pears go on the side and defeather this thing and cook it up and eat it? Or is it like a pet? Like, what do I do with this pear tree? And hopefully you like birds because on the second day of Christmas, your true love sent two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. So I'm not sure if these are adding every time, like you get another partridge in a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas, your true love sent to you three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. I hope you like birds because the fourth day, you know what's coming, right? The fourth day, four calling birds. The fifth day, your true love comes to their senses. They send five golden rings, now jewelry. And some of you are like, an amen. But then they regress. Six geese are laying. And then I thought, what are they laying? Is it eggs? We assume it's eggs. I went to a college campus. We had a big pond in the middle of our campus. What I was dodging between classes was not geese eggs, but we had geese. They were laying. Seven swans are swimming. All right, we've got more birds. Birds just keep coming. Maybe they live on a farm because eight, I think the eighth day gives us a clue. Eight maids are milking. Okay, somebody's helping out around here. That's good. The nine ladies dancing, ten lords a-leaping. I thought about that one, and I could imagine taking my wife, like if I got her lords a-leaping, and saying, honey, cover your eyes, come to the front yard. There's these British dudes out in the front yard. Look at them, and they're just out there. <laughs> they're just leaping around. And then I thought, do, do they stay, like for the whole year? Or is it like ten seconds? Like you get ten lords a-leaping, or is it like, it's sun take the garbage out, lords a-leaping, like make yourself useful. Eleven pipers piping, twelve drummers drumming. Has anyone given a kid a drum before? It's a rookie mistake, by the way. You think about some of these gifts. What do you do if somebody gives you these gifts? What would you do with this kind of stuff? Have you ever been given a gift like that? 
I remember one time my, my mom was one of 12 kids, and so a big family, lots of aunts and uncles. We didn't see them all, all the time, but we'd come together for Christmas time. And my mom had taught me, no matter what you get, like these people don't even know you, what did you get? You say, thank you, we'll deal with it afterwards, okay? I'm going to take it back, whatever we got to do. I remember one year getting a present from one of my aunts, and I looked at my mom, I couldn't like act. I looked, I was like, I don't know what this is. What is it? Much less, what do I do with it? It was, um, it didn't seem creepy to me at the time. It does now, as I look back on it. It wasn't a bathrobe. It was a bathroom wrap. I was 10 years old. This is my aunt. Anyway. And bless you, if you're watching, Jesus loves you, and we are glad that you're looking on. Have you ever given a gift that you didn't know what to do with it? We've been talking about in this series the gift of God, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. That's who's come for us. Jesus, for unto us a child is born. He comes. He is our Savior, the Savior of the world. And we've talked about some of the other gifts that come with Jesus coming, grace and hope and truth, and he keeps his promises. And today we're going to talk about a gift that I bet most, those of you who are followers of Jesus, I bet you could define it and we could sing songs about it. You're happy that you've received it, but what do you do with this gift? And most Christians don't have any clue what to do as a result of receiving this gift. The gift that we're talking about today is the gift of redemption. To be redeemed is to be bought out. That's all that means. Simply just means to be buy someone out. It's like a slave that's being set free. The picture we get in the Old Testament is the picture of the Israelites 400 years in bondage. The old King James version of the Bible made it famous calling it the house of bondage that they were in for 400 years in slavery and oppression, and then God parts the Red Sea. He's their redeemer. He's brought them out of that bondage. And then New Testament, the picture is Jesus Christ comes as our redeemer. What does he redeem us from? Most of us aren't slaves, but we're slaves to sin. It's like we just sang about in this song, that, that we go in our own way. We rebel against God, and so then we incur a debt, the wages of sin, that's why Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. He's paying a debt. The debt is God's wrath coming against you because of your sin. And Jesus absorbed that on the cross. So he's our redeemer. And with that comes, we, we're seen by God as holy. We're adopted into his family. We're forgiven of our sins. Those are all incredible truths. We're thankful for that. We can praise God for that. But what do we do as a result of that. And that's what Zechariah tells us in this song that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 1. What do you do with the gift of redemption? We're going to look at this song. I promise you it is better than the 12 days of Christmas song. I did have someone tell me that the 12 days of Christmas song is, is a coded Christian song. You can look that up. Snope says that is not true, but it is most of us just a ridiculous song. But this song that we're going to look at today, it's all about our redemption. It's all about this gift and what Zechariah tells us is what to do as a result. The, the context for this, if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, is really found in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke's writing not to just a big general audience of Gentiles, a big general audience of Jewish people, not to some church. He's writing to one guy. His name is Theophilus. It's a friend of Luke's, and, and Luke's got a burden for him. He wants him to know with certainty about Jesus Christ. And it's like we talk about it as a church. We want everybody that calls this church their home to have at least one person every year that you're burdened for, that you're burdened that they would spend eternity with Jesus and not eternity separated from them, that you're burdened that they would know the truth of the gospel message, not just in their minds, but it would transform their lives. And so we ask you, who's your one? Maybe it's who you're going to invite to Christmas Eve. Maybe it's somebody that you're going to invite over to your house for Christmas Day. I don't, somebody that you're caring for and trying to share the gospel with. And for Luke, that was Theophilus. He was burdened for him. He wanted to know for certain about Jesus, which is interesting that he starts his book, that he writes to him, not about Jesus. 
But about the forerunner to Jesus, he tells this story about this old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that are past childbearing years. They're probably in their 60s, have never been able to have a kid. And an angel comes to Zechariah while he's serving in the temple as a priest. He says, you're going to have a child. And Zechariah says, show me a sign. And the angel says, I'm an angel, dude. What do you need? And because he doubted and because of his sin, God disciplines him because God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines Zechariah and he's not able to speak for nine months. In the meantime, Elizabeth, his wife, conceives a child. She goes into hiding. And then six months later, that same angel visits a young girl named Mary. And Mary's told that she's going to have a child, even though she's young. She's probably only about 14 years old. And she's pledged to be married. She's not even married. She's a virgin. She's going to have a child, another miraculous birth. But this is not just a child. It's the Savior of all mankind. And then she says this amazing statement, May it be to me as you have said. I'll do, God, this is my life that you can have to do whatever you want with it. Something we should all say. Whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want to do it, I'm surrendered to you. But then last week we saw, she doesn't just say those words. Faith takes action. We see that in James. Faith without deeds is dead. So you've got to do something. If you believe, then it will result in actions. And we saw it with her last week. She went out and she saw Elizabeth. And she spent three months with Elizabeth, we see in verse 56. And we see that faith's always calling us to take steps. What's your next step? If you didn't take it last week, hopefully it'll happen today. But join me in verse 56. It says, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And so it seems like she wasn't there for the birth of this child, but maybe she was. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And so she was in hiding for a while. We don't know if she came out before the nine-month mark. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who's gotten pregnant, and then you see them after a while. It's pretty obvious they're pregnant. Can I give you a little life skill? What to say? Exactly. <laughs> and I've done the opposite of that. You look like you're going to pop. Are you having twins? Don't do any of that. It's terrible. Sometimes my mouth just starts going. And so they see that she's pregnant. Here's this woman. She's in her 60s. They've seen her weep these tears of not being able to have a baby. We don't know if there's been miscarriages. We know she hasn't had a baby. And now she's, they're there to rejoice with her. She's, she's had a baby. And it's the eighth day they're going to name this child. It's the day of circumcision. It's a Jewish child. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. They were going to give him a name from the family. That was the custom. But his mother answered, and in, this is in the Greek, is an emphatic statement, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, that doesn't make any sense. None of your relatives is called by this name. No one does that. But remember, God told them to do this. Sometimes God tells you to do stuff. It doesn't make any sense to your friends. Sometimes even your Christian friends are going to try and stop you from obeying God. But they're bold in their faith. Look what happens. And they made signs to his father. And so we know that Zechariah hasn't been able to speak, but here we realize he probably hasn't been able to hear either. He's deaf as well as mute. They make signs to him. Otherwise, they would just talked to him. They make signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so, all right, Elizabeth's been pregnant for a while, just had hard labor. Maybe she's not thinking straight. Let's go to dad and see what he wants to name the kid. And he asked for a writing tablet, verse 63, and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. They were amazed at this. But notice this. Here's the summary of this whole message today, by the way, verse 64. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed. He's been bound. His tongue has been unable to talk. Why? Because he's being disciplined because of his sin. As soon as he obeys, he's set free. And what does he do? He spoke blessing God, praising God. We're set free to bring glory to God. Verse 65. And fear came in all their neighbors 
And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? Not who will this child be. Isn't that interesting? What will this child, what's he going to do? It's all oriented towards his task of his life because he's ultimately just a pointer to Jesus. Kind of like Christmas isn't really about Christmas. Christmas is ultimately a pointer to Easter, by the way, because we have a Redeemer, not just a baby that's born to us. And then they say, for the hand of the Lord was with him. That's a phrase, a statement that means that God's powerful presence was made known to him. But he's just a child. He's just a child. How's this the case? And what were the words that the father spoke? And that's what we get in verses 67 through 79. We'll read verses 67 through 80. It's the song that he sings here. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed. This song is oftentimes called the Benedictus. It's the first Latin word in this song. Remember what happened to Zechariah? Zechariah, when he was at the temple, when he was told he couldn't speak anymore, he was supposed to, right after that moment, go out. There was a crowd of people waiting for him to come and pronounce a benediction on them. For nine months, he hasn't been able to speak. And here's the benediction. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel. Praise be the Lord, God of Israel. Why? For he has visited us and redeemed his people and raised up a horn. That's a picture of strength. A horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy, promise to our fathers, and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So he's alluded to in verse 69 to the Davidic covenant. Here he alludes to the Abrahamic covenant. And then here we're doing a series on gifts to grant or give us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. There's the thrust. That's where we're going to focus today, verse 74. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So he's been singing this song for nine months. Finds out about this miraculous birth. Hasn't said one word about his son yet until verse 76. And then even what he says about his son isn't really about his son. Look at He's singing about Jesus. It says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And then verse 80 is really a summary of the, this boy. And the child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of public appearance to Israel. So here you have the song. There's a ton of stuff in this song. Great imagery in this song. You see all the things that could be talked about, the peace that's talked about at the end of this song. And there's lots of stuff for you to go back and study on your own. We're not going to cover all that today. We're going to talk about overarching. What's this song about? And if you study the, the Bible and you go through and you're making observations of this text, what you'll see is there are a bunch of words about redemption. To redeem, deliver, mercy, salvation, forgiveness. The whole song's about redemption. In fact, the covenants that are mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant are the three covenants of the Old Testament that are about redemption. There are other covenants, promises in the Old Testament, Noahic covenant, I won't destroy the earth again with a flood, that aren't about redemption. They're promises of God, they're awesome, but they're not about redemption. These ones all are. And if you want just a simple summary, you go back up to where he started, it really sets the theme for the whole song, verse 68. Blessed be... The Lord God of Israel, why? Because he's visited, he's visited, he's come. What do we celebrate at Christmas time? The Advent, his coming here. For unto us a child is born, unto us. He's Emmanuel, God with us, his presence. But why? Why? It says here, and redeemed his people. Bought them out. Paid the price. But why? 
And redeemed from what? Because most of us don't feel like we're in bondage. What are we redeemed from? Jesus says later when he starts his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, it says that he reads from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, it says that he came to preach good news to the poor, poor in spirit, set the captives free. When did Jesus lead a prison break in the New Testament? If you find it, I'd love to see it. I've never seen it. It's not in there. You know what he's setting us free from? He's setting us free from sin. He's setting us free from shame. He's setting us free from guilt. He's setting us free from death. He's setting us free from our enemy. Most of us don't even think we have an enemy, but you do have one. And he's roaming around like a lion, looking for whom he can devour. The Bible tells us that he wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. And you can think that that doesn't happen. Doesn't, that's not real, and he's got you exactly where he wants you. And Jesus came to set you free from that, to redeem you. And what we're going to see here is why. Why, though? We're not just free so that we can be free. Why are we free? And what we see in this passage of Scripture, some of you have just kind of been lulled, it's kind of like in cruise control on your faith journey. This could be a catalyst for you. What we see in this passage of Scripture is something that, it's like high-impact Christians. The effective Christians, they know this, and it seems like the rest of us don't get it, or we don't care. It's the kind of thing that the, the person who dies for their faith enjoy knows. It's, the, it's like the psalmist when he cries out, your love is better than my life, so my lips will praise you. I'm going to bring you glory. Why? Because they know why they're saved. And what you see, the answer, it's in verse 74 and 75. You look at it, it says that we being delivered, you've been redeemed from the hand of our enemies, might serve him. You've been saved to serve him. Most of us live, we think life is all about us. It's all about the benefits we get, and we, we reflect on it, we're thankful for it, we don't do anything about it because we think it's all about what we receive. But you're actually saved so that you can serve the one who redeemed you, the one who brought you out, the one who paid the price for you, but how do you serve? And that's what we're going to see today. Without fear, with holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so how do we serve him? How does this look? We serve him from a position of freedom. That's our first point today. We serve him from a position of freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from self. Freedom from sin. Freedom from shame. Freedom from the enemy. Freedom from death. And some of us, we know these things in our mind, but they're not reality in our lives. So you're set free. Set free, but you don't even realize you're in bondage. You go here and say, what's he in bondage to? What's he talking about? And walk through the verse. He says in verse 71, his enemies, maybe he's talking about Rome here. There was taxation, high oppression. For those who hate us, maybe it's anybody who stands against God here. But then you get to verse 77, and he says, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And so we see there's a, he's actually talking about spiritual bondage here. And we're in bondage to sin. The problem is that many of us don't realize, the same as we don't think that Satan's real, and we don't think that we really have an enemy, many of us, we don't think that we're really in bondage to sin. I mean, we've been forgiven. We've trusted Christ as our Savior, and so we don't think about that. And there's some people, I mean, you're in bondage to painkillers. You know that. Like you, you're taking the pain. You need them every few hours maybe. And so you know that you're in bondage to that, I, I hope. Some people are in bondage to pornography. That's the thing they go to. That's their, that's their escape. That's their real savior. That's their Lord. And so most people know that when that's their thing. Some people it's alcohol. Some of those things are obvious. Some of them are less obvious. And some of us are trapped and we don't even know it. I mean, thinking about this past week, I was in the attic of our house, just getting some stuff out of the attic, and I saw we had this bookshelf. We've had it since before we ever even moved to North Carolina, and we just kind of always kept it in storage, and it was in our attic, and a bunch of stuff had piled up on it, and I thought to myself, we should get a reading area for the kids, and so I took this little nook that we had at the top of the steps. I was like, this is going to be, this will be a great reading area, you know, 
readers are leaders, and so I want to develop these kids and try and spur these interests and put the good books out there. So I'm like, I'm going to take the, we already have the bookshelf. I'm going to get the bookshelf out and start taking stuff off the bookshelf. We have a lot of crafts. Thank you, Bridge Kids. <laughs> There's stuff that's just kind of piling up in this storage area there, and so we're going to clean this out. And old stuff that we had, some, you know, address books from back when people didn't have social media. I'm like, well, how long have we had this stuff? And so I'm taking this stuff off, and as I'm clearing off this bookshelf, I see a bunch of little brown and black pellets on top of the bookshelf. Uh-huh, you know where this is going. So if any of you on, you know, Christmas Eve, like not a creature was stirring, you can think, at Pastor Scott House, there's a creature stirring, <laughs> at least one, and wipe it off, and I'm kind of a clean freak, and so I'm like sanitizing the top of this bookshelf, and then I take the bookshelf out, and I realize there must be like an army of these things, because there's a mound of pellets back behind here. And so now in my mind, and sorry if you're an uh, animal advocate in our audience today, I'm like, I gotta destroy, I gotta kill this thing, this has gotta die, this has to happen. And so the next day at work, I'm in the break room, and we're talking about mice. I probably brought it up. I don't know how it happened, but we're talking about mice, and some of the staff are in there. We're talking about the best way to kill a mouse. And I was thinking, like, old-school trap. Put a piece of cheese. I guess mice like cheese. That's what that happens in the cartoons. And Slap it down, right? Break its neck. Be done. Over with. Quick. And somebody says the best way to catch a mouse is to take one of those sticky traps, put it in a brown paper sack, and they get stuck on it. Now, like I said, I'm not an animal advocate, but I thought to myself, I don't know if it's curiosity or compassion, how does it die? And just because you're stuck doesn't mean you die. Like, how does it die? And then they start to speculate. And so one staff member said, well, maybe it starves to death. And I thought, how much does a mouse eat? Like, he dies overnight? Like, just from not eating? I mean, I go to bed sometimes and I feel like, I'm going to die. I'm not going to die. I promise. I'll wake up the next morning. And then somebody said, maybe it gets so anxious. It, like, works itself up and has a heart attack. I thought, that's possible. And then somebody said, maybe it dies of loneliness. <laughs> oh, poor little mousy. <laughs> Quit pooping in my house. I wouldn't kill you. And then I thought, isn't that so like Satan? What if he could get us trapped in darkness, separate from truth, the things that set us free, and us not even know we were trapped? Wouldn't that be great? And then you think about, many of us know, I mean, it's porn, you know you're trapped in porn. It's, it's painkillers, you know you're trapped in painkillers. What about some of the more subtle sins? The praise of man. Some of us live in bondage to that, and we don't even realize it's controlling our lives. What about the pursuit of false security, and that might be money, and it might be reputation. What about power? We've got these things that hold us in bondage, and we don't even realize we're in bondage. And what does Zechariah say here? After nine months of his tongue being bound, you get to say one thing after nine months. What's the first thing you're going to say? I've got a redeemer. It sets me free. Here's a guy. He spent time in his life. He experienced pain. It wasn't because of sin in his life. That wasn't why he didn't have a child. Many people thought that was the case. But there came a point in his life where because of sin, then he did experience difficulty. Not being able to speak, that was discipline in his life that God does. God disciplines those he loves. It's not that he's an angry, vengeful God. He loves you too much to let you continue on in your sin. So then he realized, now I know, now I know forgiveness. Verse 77, when it says that John the Baptist was to preach to give people a knowledge of forgiveness, that word knowledge there is not just so they can download information into their mind. So they can experience it. Now, Zechariah has experienced this forgiveness. He knows what it's like. You're being disciplined. Let me tell you something. God's not done with you. He's working on you. You're still, you're still alive. God's still got a plan for your life. You've sinned. You've blown it. God's grace is sufficient for that. But he disciplines us. And here's Zechariah. He hasn't spoken for nine months. Try and imagine that. If you couldn't speak for nine months, couldn't hear for nine months, 
what would that be like, the silence of that? Like no social media, no movies, none of that, no Netflix. Can't just kill the time for nine months. You're alone. The only one you're hearing from for nine months is your own thoughts and God. And then your mouth is loosed. And you can speak. Pastor Seth and I were talking. He was sharing a story with me from when he was a youth pastor back prior to him ever becoming a worship pastor. He was a youth pastor. And he was talking about one family in their church back in, in Colorado where they had a highly autistic son who was unable to even communicate with his family. He was 18 years old, never able to put thoughts together to be able to talk to his family. Until when he was 18, they took him to the special treatment center in Salt Lake City, and they ended up uh, training him how to use this device where he could type out letter by letter, word by word, to be able to communicate with his family. And his therapist gave him an assignment of writing an essay to his family. Now, his family, they loved him. They were a Christian family, had a house church, brought the gospel into the home. And, and whenever he would get kind of worked up, they'd put him in front of Veggie Tales to watch a show, and it seemed to calm him down. So he's writing this essay to his family, and it's his real first time communicating with his family, and he shared with them, thank you for your grace and your patience, and by the way, I hate Veggie Tales. <laughs> Can you imagine getting that message as a, a family member? You're like, for real? Like, you always calm down? He was probably thinking to himself, more talking vegetables. Like, here we go again. Enough with the vegetables, okay? Nine months. That's all it was. Nine months. Not 18 years. Nine months. How, how, what would you say? And Zechariah says, here, we've got a redeemer. It seemed like it had, been four, it had been 400 years since a prophetic word had come. It seemed like 400 years where God wasn't even paying attention. He says, he's visited us, verse 68. He's come to, to us, a child is born. He's come here. Oh, that's awesome. But it's more than that. He's a redeemer. He sets us free. He pays the price. He pays the ransom, the wages of our sin, debt. Many of us in sin, we don't even know we're in sin. We don't even think about it as sin. We're trapped. We've got an enemy who's holding us in bondage. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We don't. He did. He's the redeemer. You see, the Christmas story points us to Easter, points us to the cross, points us to the death, points us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just a sweet story of a baby being born. Miraculously, it's all great, all good, but not enough. It points us to the Redeemer who's redeemed us from our sin, who sets us free from our sin. So the question is, are you free from your sin? Are you free? Are you trapped? In bondage, in bondage to anxiety, in bondage to depression, in bondage to your pride, in bondage to your pursuits of false security, in bondage to pornography, in bondage to painkillers. In bondage to what other people think of you. In bondage to getting some other person into your life. And dad's approval. What is it? Are you in bondage? Because you've got a redeemer. He sets you free. He wants you to serve him in freedom from bondage. And he'll do whatever it takes to make that possible. We see it through the gospel story. But not just in the gospel story, in your Christian journey too. And we see it in Zechariah's life. He uses whatever it takes to get him to the place of freedom. We can serve with freedom. And he says here, desire for the rest of the days of his life. I read a story this week about a guy that was taking some pictures, and he took a picture of the sunset. And in the sunset, he happened to capture a father and a son that were fishing together. It's on the Mississippi River. Uh, it was earlier this year. And you can see it here. You can, the sun's hard to see, but he's off to the side, uh, to my right, your left, in that photo. And he took the picture just because of the sunset, and he walked up onto the, the land. He was in the parking lot, and he said he looked back, and he saw that the son and the father weren't on the dock anymore. They'd gone into the water, but he didn't know why. He just looked back and saw it. He said, and then I saw two bystanders that went into the water, and they pulled the child out, but they didn't find the father. In fact, they never found the father. The father died. He drowned that day. What had happened was the six-year-old had fallen into the water, and the dad went in to save him. What the guy who took the picture said is that later he found out that the dad didn't know how to swim. 
So here's the reality. That dad knew he didn't know how to swim when he jumped in the water to save his son. And so any of you that have kids, you know this is true. You do whatever you had to do to save your child. And so here's God, the Father, who did whatever he had to do to save his son. If there's any other way, some people say, oh, there's more than one way. There's not more than one way. If there's any other way, then what is God like that he'd send his son to die for you? So he'd do whatever it takes to redeem you. He'd do whatever it takes also so you can live in freedom. And so he does it here with Zechariah. What was it like for Zechariah to have unanswered prayer in his life for decades? In his 20s, could have no idea. The pain that he's enduring in his 20s of not being able to have a child is ultimately for God's glory in his 60s. Some of you here are in a situation, your dreams haven't gone the way you wanted them to go. So maybe God's not trustworthy. Or maybe he's doing something bigger than you could imagine. Maybe it's something different. He's preparing you right now. Don't get caught in bondage of your doubts. Don't get caught in bondage of the sin that you want to run to because you don't think God is good. Maybe he's doing something different than you had planned. He uses discipline. You see here, Zechariah is being disciplined because of his sin. And we're a church. We're a gracious church, a grace-giving church. Remember what sin you've done, God can forgive you. We believe if you're breathing, God's got a plan for your life. And so sometimes you're like, well, we don't talk about discipline, but God does. But his discipline's not like we think of discipline a lot of times. His discipline's cut because he loves us. I was reading this week in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, he's rebuking them. Do you know what their sin is? Talk about a subtle one, self-sufficiency. He said, you think that you're rich and you think that you've got it all together and they've got this eye salve that they're famous for and they make clothes. He says, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you can't bring anything to me. He's confronting them because he loves them. And he says in chapter 3 in verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Some of you are experiencing pain in your life because of sin in your life. And you need to know that truth. And it's not you're a victim. See, we need to take responsibility for the prisons. The prisons we live in oftentimes are prisons we create. And so we do have an enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy us. But he's got allies on the inside of us. You know who those allies are? Indwelling sin. We love sin. The Bible says that you heard that the Spiro saying the words on our, our video for the bumper for this service. He was reading from John chapter 1. Sin, light entered the world. But the reason why people reject it, because they love darkness. We love what we love. You can't just stop loving what you love. If you don't think somebody loves darkness, let me give you a little tip. You can try this, especially those of you who are married, you've got a college roommate. Uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, or the person that you're with is sleeping, why don't you go in and turn the lights on and see if they raise up and call you blessed. <laughs> they will not. I almost can guarantee they will not. Because we love what we love. So no matter how attractive light is, no matter how great light was, people love darkness. We love our sin. So what do we need to do? Wake up, race to repentance, and begin to see the light. Be drawn to the light. And how do you do it? Well, take the next step of faith. Take the next step of faith, and you start realizing he's trustworthy. You start growing in your faith. You start tasting and seeing that he is good and wanting what is good. So repent. But it's not just so that we can be freed from bondage. Look at verse 74. He wants us to serve us in a certain nature, and that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, fearlessly. And so it's not just that we'd have a position of freedom, but it's that we'd have a conviction of courage. That we'd have a conviction of courage. So last week, I challenged you, take your next step of faith. What's the next step of faith? It'll be different for each person. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, trust Jesus as your Savior. That's your first step of faith. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, maybe you need to lead in your home. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, maybe it's time for you to take ownership of your own sin. Be responsible. Grow up. Start being an adult. 
not blaming every other circumstance what your parents did when they were doing all this stuff and not saying there's not pain, not lacking compassion in that, but saying, hey, it's not, you have to decide for you what decisions you're going to make. Are you going to follow the Savior? You're going to linger and wallow. Some of you need to be bold with your faith. Think about our, our Chris Travis, one of our members who gave the announcements at the end of the first service last week. And he stood up here and he said, my next step of faith, I'm having lunch with some guys today. And he said, I want to invite them to Christmas Eve service and I need courage. See, what we all need to take the next step of faith, whatever it is, is courage. See, what's stopping some of us from being high-impact Christians is not that God doesn't have some plan for our life like he does for other people that are high-impact Christians. It's not that we have secret sin in our life. It's not that we're trying to run from God's plan. It's what this right here, fear. Fear is what stops most of us. Many of us are frozen in fear. And so he says here, he's singing this song. I'm sure he taught these things to his son. Verse 74 says that we being delivered, we've got a redeemer. We've been delivered from the hand of our enemies. We might serve him. How? Fearlessly, without fear, in holiness and righteousness. But I'm not holy and I'm not righteous. No, but you've received forgiveness if you've repented. So you are in whole, you can be free from bondage and then live without fear. Think about what's the difference between when you read the Bible and you use some people that accomplish incredible stuff for God and then some people who don't. What's the, what's the fact? What in David and Goliath in that story? When David fights the giant, what's the difference between David and Saul? Because everything in the story points to Saul should be the one that does it. He knows the same stuff David does. He knows the same stories of redemption. He knows about the Red Sea. He knows about God's power. He's the king. He's afraid. Shadrach, when he's standing in the fiery furnace before Nebuchadnezzar, says, it doesn't matter. If God doesn't deliver me and I die in this fiery furnace, why can he be so bold? And the Israelites stand at the promised land and go, there's big people in that land. I don't think we can win. It's fear. And you see, he says this, and then the next words are about his son, John the Baptist. And what you want a picture of a guy who has no fear? Look at John the Baptist. He's not afraid of, some of us are afraid of being marginalized. Some of us are afraid that our lives won't matter. Do you remember when John's life when his disciples start coming to him, I mean, he was the hot thing. He was like the hot topic there. And then Jesus starts becoming more popular than him. You know what he says? He must increase, I must decrease. He's comfortable with who God made him to walk in the light that God gave him. He's not afraid of losing his reputation. He's not afraid of materialism. What does he say to people in the materialistic age that he lives in? You got two tunics, give one. You know what most pastors don't want to talk about? Giving. Do you know why? Because the pastors are scared of the people. And whether they're going to like and whether they're going to keep showing up. You know what people need to hear? Hey, don't be caught in the prison of the people in Laodicea. Your self-sufficiency, your self-absorption, thinking life's all about you, it's a gift to share with people that they should be giving. He's not afraid of the people. And we know he's not afraid of people. He stands before Herod, the most powerful guy in his day, and says, listen, you're, you're shacking up with this wife of yours? That's an adulterous marriage. You shouldn't even be married. He gets arrested for it, gets his head chopped off. He's not afraid of people. So you can say what you want to say about John the Baptist. You can't say he's afraid of people. You can't say he's afraid of power. He says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, when they come out to repent. That's not like seeker-sensitive language, in case you're wondering. It wasn't like a compliment in the Bible. He's not afraid of people. He's not afraid of power. He's not afraid of any of that stuff. You know what he's afraid of? God. See, we talk about being without fear. What kind of fear is Zechariah talking about in this passage? Well, you go through and you read it. Deliver us from our enemies. Save us from those who hate us. It's talking about the fear of man. See, fear as a whole isn't bad. The problem is we fear the wrong things. We fear man. We fear loss. We fear, where does your anxiety come from? Those of you who have anxiety, we fear things are going to happen. They're out of our control. That's a myth anyways. We fear the wrong stuff. We fear small stuff. We should be fearing God. 
In fact, the answer to this is given in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, most of whom will be, will be martyred for their faith. And he says to them in Luke chapter 12 and verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I'll warn you whom you to fear. Fear him who after he's killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So there's a good fear. There's a healthy fear. It's the fear of God. What did we saw it earlier? From generation to generation, those who fear God, who have faith in God, there's a good fear. It's the fear of God. The problem is we don't fear God, we fear man. And that's why we get trapped in bondage of our fears. He's saying here, live without fear, serve without fear. You think about it, some of you, think about some of your situations. Some of your teachers, you teach in a public school, and you're a Christian, and it's the Christmas season, and you're not supposed to talk about Jesus. I'm not saying to be foolish, not to I'm, be shrewd, be shrewd. Innocent as doves, shrewd as vipers. But you talk about Jesus, what are they going to do to you? Fire you? That's it? That's all they got? So most of us aren't even going to be tortured and killed. But that's the most they can do. So you're a business person. And you got this deal, and it doesn't feel right, and you know there's some shady stuff, but you're going to tithe on the money, so it's okay, right? No, no, are you going to, your reputation, you're afraid of losing your reputation, the bottom line? Like, what are you afraid of losing here? Moms, you're afraid of being bold in your faith? What are the other moms going to do? They're going to shame you and shun you? That's it? That's all they got? The worst they can do is torture and kill you. You're like, well, that sounds pretty bad, Scott. That's because we think all there is to this life is this life. What, is, what does Jesus say when he's talking about anxiety in Matthew chapter 6? He says, you're worried about what you're going to wear. Do you, see how, do you see what God does with the fields and the flowers? Do you see what he does with the birds? Seek first his kingdom. Do we live for his kingdom? He says, you fear God. Why does he say to fear God in Luke chapter 12? Because he holds eternity in his hand. You're worried about just this life. You're worried about this week. You're worried about what your neighbors think about you. Are you kidding? Don't fear that. You're in bondage. You don't even know you're in bondage. Serve without fear. How do you have? You got to exchange fears. You got to have a greater fear, the fear of God. That's what John the Baptist knew it. That's why he was content. Whatever life God's given me to lead, I'm going to be faithful and living that life. I'm not afraid of people. I'm not afraid of power. I'm not afraid of any of this stuff because I fear God. You can say what you want about John the Baptist. He didn't fear this. He didn't fear that. But he did fear God. And you see it in the way they lived. And it had a huge impact. I was thinking about it this week and thinking about for us. There was a story I read a few years ago about a pastor in Romania who was being persecuted. And this pastor, uh, in his persecution, was one time being questioned by the police. They were interrogating him, and he said to them, let me, let me explain to you how I see this. And they started to listen. And he said, the way I see it is the greatest weapon you have against me is killing me, but the greatest weapon I have against you is dying. Because I've, got, I've preached these sermons, and they're cassette tapes, and so it was years ago. He said, the cassette tapes are all over this country, and people have listened to them, but if you kill me, You'll be sprinkling those cassette tapes with my blood. And the listeners are going to go, that guy really meant what he said. Maybe I should listen again. They didn't kill him. It wasn't just reverse psychology he was using on them. He was telling them genuinely how he saw it in that moment. And later found out that the, a different police officer was interviewing one of his friends, another pastor, and said to his friend, Mr. Son, his name is Joseph Son, if you want to look him up. He's written a whole book on persecution. He said, Mr. Son wants us to martyr him, and we're not going to give him that gift. And then he says, I'm going to read it to you from his own words. He says this. He said, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remember how for many years I had lived being afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. How many of us, frozen by fear, aren't doing what God's calling us to do 
We're wasting our lives, but we're safe and we have false security. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. (laughs) I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. And then he concludes with this. Does this sound biblical? As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. So why did Jesus? So we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Why did Jesus come? That you could have life and have it abundantly. What's robbing many of us of living the abundant life is we're holding so tightly to this life and the idols that we have in our life because the fears, they ultimately show us what our idols are. And what God's doing through the discipline, what God's doing through the difficulty, what God does through some of the pain in our life, and some of the pain is because of our sin, and some of our pain is because of somebody else's sin, and some of our pain is because they're just living in a place that's broken. But what God's doing is he uses all of that, regardless of the cause, to push to the surface the idols of our hearts. You want to see them revealed? What do you fear? Because that's what you love. Whatever you fear the most is what you love the most. And what are we told by Jesus by Moses, love God with everything that you are. Fear God. You exchange those lesser fears for the greater fear. How do I do that, Scott? What's the practical thing that I do there? Here's the reality. If you know that you're caught in bondage of sin, the application of today's message is that you race to repentance. We're going to have some time of communion in a little bit. You just start repenting when that time starts. So we need to trust Jesus as your Savior. Do that. First step of faith. Some of you have repented. You are right with God. You're ready for the next thing. Let me tell you what you do. You take the next step of faith. You do like David did. You know how David knew that he could fight the giant? Because he had fought a lion. He fought a bear. I bet you that was scary in the moment. But then he realized, I, could, I can trust God to fight the lion. I can trust God to fight the bear. Maybe God will come through with this giant. Some of you need to take those steps of faith. Keep taking steps of faith. 